HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I go behind the scenes to learn about people who are shaping the world of food. Today, my guest is Doris Cooper. As the vice president and associate publisher of Clarkson Potter, she oversees the editorial department of one of my favorite publishers in the world because I covet uh, her cookbooks. Alex Gornichelli's most recent book, Home Cooking, just landed in my house. It's extraordinary, as is Melissa Clark's Dinner or Ronnie Lundy's Vittles. I could go on and on, and we actually wouldn't even talk during the show because all I would do is list the books that Doris oversees that I love. But since she's here, um, I'm looking forward to talking with her about her career in publishing, about how she's cultivated authors, changes in publishing head, and how some of you listeners might sort of get involved with books. So without further ado, welcome, Doris. Thank you. That was such a lovely introduction. And Kudos to the team who make those books. Yes, you are. Um, you're the the strategist, <laughs> the encourager in chief. Definitely encourager in chief, and um, you know, part visionary. So, how did you get involved in books? Like, what was the beginning? Um, well, the very beginning was when I was in college, and. Um, I was one of those kids who, you know, I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper. I was the first one in my class to declare an English major. (laughs) There was very little mystery about what I was going to, what interested me or how I was going to parlay that. And um, anyway, I ended up with an unpaid editorial internship at Farrah Strauss in Giroux. One of the great 
old houses. One of the all-time great houses. They were, I mean, it was a while ago. They were still very much an independent press. 19 Union Square West. The Union Square Park was still pretty gritty. (laughs) And, um, you know, my job was basically to come in in the morning and see who needed stuff to be Xerox. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's... (laughs) Today, that's sort of funny to think about. Right, right. right. As Xerox machines are phased out. Completely. And it's funny to think about, but it's also sort of a, it's a little bit of a tragedy because in holding all that paper or sitting um, in, you know, sitting in the dark room where the Xerox machine was, you read the stuff. Um, And in fact, the highlight of that summer, and, and Ferris Dress was a little bit famous for this, but... In August, uh, Roger Strauss's secretary, and she was referred to as a secretary, would go on vacation. And one of the interns would get to sit at her desk at her typewriter and answer his phone and be his secretary. And that summer, I got to be that person. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Um, And it was completely thrilling. And it was, you know, breathing the air that the poets breathed. And it was also the the era that they were publishing, um, you know, they were publishing From Beirut to Jerusalem and Bonfire of the Vanities and Grace Paley and Flannery O'Connor. And they, I think at the time... I'm really getting goosebumps Yeah, it was so cool. It was just so cool. Um, and so what was really amazing was that Xeroxing and you'd like walk back down this long hallway and there was a crummy old machine and while the pages, you know, somebody's copy edited pages were going through, all the files were there. Like ever, there was no, there was no internet, there were no digital anything. Um, and you, I would paw through the files and, you know, you could look at the contracts. I could see the editorial letter that Jonathan Galassi had written to Tom Wolfe. It was all there. And, um, I mean, I, I guess I was snooping, but nobody, I just thought, I, I don't think anybody cared. That was part of how you learned. I think also that is, um, shows your curiosity, which in fact is the hallmark of a great editor. So you were part detective, but also just curious. And oh, ha- yeah. how did this sausage get made? Right. And, and nobody sits down and says, well, first, you know, you get a manuscript in and then you, you bid on it. You just, you were sort of, you were basically there to actually neither be seen nor heard. You were just sort of there. <laughs> you, you were lucky to be, I mean, it was unpaid. It was they, it was a, it was a really hot ticket. And at the end of that, you, you had found what you loved. Oh yeah. I was, put a fork in me. (laughs) I was like, there was just, there was really, there was no going back. It was completely exhilarating. And, you know, at the time, um, you know, we sort of had family friends who were publishing and, and they were sort of discouraging, like, oh, you know, it's, the market is terrible. Nobody reads anymore. And of course that wasn't true. I mean, you know, the market is always terrible and people are always reading and they're continuing to read. Um, anyway, it, it, none of it, it was like, it, none of it affected me. You just ignored it and plowed ahead. Yeah, I don't know what else I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly you were well primed to, um, to be an editor. And so, as I understand it, your career has always been in books and from the outside it almost looks a little bit seamless right because you had this internship you found what you loved well you were you know you were an English major you found what you loved um and then you've had jobs in publishing but were there struggles along the way points at which you said this is hard or it didn't work and you had to overcome that 
Uh, oh, yeah, like every day. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I'm like, there's got to be an easier way to make a living. Um, well, I mean, I was laid off in when I worked at my first job was at William Morrow, where I started as an editorial assistant and stayed there. Um, actually, the day, the week I got there, Hearst, which owned the company, put the company on the block for sale. So that meant that kind of nobody wanted, for a very long time, wanted to sell books. Um, and eventually, HarperCollins, or News Corp, bought William Morrow, and I was laid off. Um, and that was really scary. Um, so what, what was that like? Were you doing a mid-level job? A, and so finding another job of that caliber Yeah, I was a young so senior editor. Um, or, I'm not so young. I mean, I was 20, I was 29. I was a senior editor. And I guess what was lucky is that the internet was booming. So actually, there was now something shinier and sexier than book publishing. So I was very fortunate. I got a job fairly quickly at Simon & Schuster at the Touchstone, at the Fireside Touchstone division of Simon & Schuster. But that was jarring. You know, that was jarring that you could be plugging along, doing what you were supposed to be doing, doing a pretty good job, and your company could be bought and sold and bought and you know sorry we're, you're not you're not part of the team that we want here anymore and that was really um that was really humbling and how did you recuperate from that like and does that inform anything that you do today like that experience sure I mean I I certainly I well yes and no I mean I certainly think back on it I think how you know in a way, it was great. I had been at William Morrow for a long time, perhaps too long. It, um, I went to work uh, at another company, saw how how that company published books. I really learned, you know, when I turn around, I can say I've worked at three of the major, what, four or five publishing houses. Um, and I can also really, really appreciate how well Penguin Random House publishes. Which is the parent company of Clarkson Potter, where you're currently right, employed. Right, yeah, right. Um, and and I think there's also, um, you know, I, I think there's also just something to be said for having a struggle. And and it, you know, I'm delighted that it looks seamless, but no, of course not. There, it wouldn't be so interesting without. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you did not begin your career editing cookbooks. So what were the books that you were editing? Um, well, the very, I was editing fiction. I mean, I had bought a novel, um, or one of the very first books I bought was a novel. Another one of the very first books I bought was a personal finance book. It was called The Wizard of Wall Street's Investment Guide. Um, actually, it might have been the first book I acquired. And remember, the Wall Street Journal used to have that middle column that was a personal feature, a very soft news feature. And I had read about a kid from Detroit who was using, he was, he was Asian American, he had a big Chinese American family, and he was using, they were invest, helping him uh, invest. And he was, you know, beating the market. And I actually called him up. And long story short, we ended up doing a book with him and the journalist. Um, so I was doing very, very different kinds of things. I did some poetry. Nikki Giovanni had been a house author at William Morrow. And actually, when I was there, a lot of, because the house, the, the company was for sale, they were shorthanded. A lot of editors had le preemptively left. Um, and the editor-chief at the time, who's a guy named Will Schwalbe, was like, hey, you know, 
we actually what he said was you know we needed to make we were short a book um, which happens all the time you look at your budget and you're like ah <laughs> and um, we made Nikki Giovanni's collected poems which was another Xerox job of me essentially taking all of her backlists which were thin paperbacks and creating a manuscript of um, collected poems and that is brilliant. I was not expecting to have a Xerox theme here. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, and then it, while I was actually standing there, I remember saying to Will, at, at the end, I was like, you know, I, I studied Nikki Giovanni in college, but I never thought of her as a really lovey-dovey poet. She actually has all these love poems. And he said, well, you know, call her up. And I asked her to do a book of love poems. Um, so I was doing a little bit, I mean, it was a, it was an imprint that like most imprints does not specialize. It does a little bit of everything. And I was doing a little bit of everything. So I'm gathering there's a fair amount of cold calling, you know, you, you in a publishing that I didn't really quite realize you see an idea and then you just call the oh, that's, person up. That's the best. That's the I best. mean, well, she was, she was a house author, but, um, I, she didn't really know me, so I got to call her up and introduce myself. But you're right, there is a lot of cold calling or what we call love letter writing. And I think for me and I think for the editors on our team, that's really thrilling is to, to be the one to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I am such a fan of yours. Um, do you want to sit down and talk about writing a book or what interests you? So when you... Um Went to Clarkson Potter. You became the. Did you, were you immediately the associate publisher? Was that the title you? No, I was hired as editorial director. Those both sound like very good titles. It was. It was. It was a very nice title. I was very <laughs> pleased. I wasn't sure what it meant, but it sounded good. Now, in sort of switching over to go deep into cookbooks. Was that a switch of skill sets? Like, did you need to learn something different to do that? A hundred percent. So what did you learn? Like, what was different about that? Um, well, I had pr- previously, and it really only worked on a couple of illustrated books. It wasn't our bread and butter. Clarkson Potter publishes almost exclusively illustrated books. And illustrated means um, photographed in addition to sketched or... Right. Photographs, illustrations, and really impeccably designed, beautifully designed, not just plopped there. But it's it's really a process and a true collaboration among an editor, a designer, a photographer, and a production, and somebody who works in our, a, a person who works in our production department. Um, so when I got to Potter, um, I really, I needed a crash course in how to make an illustrated book. And I, I also think Clerks and Potter makes, I think we make illustrated books in a unique and certainly a very, very special way. I don't know exactly how everybody else does it since it's the only place I've worked, but it is. Um, and what is that process? It's, um, it begins with a manuscript, um, and early, sort of early, once the manuscript is pretty much underway and the editor has an idea of how it's going to be organized, he or she will share some of that, those pages with a designer, and the designer will come up with concepts, which are, you know, the way the ingredient list looks, the uh-huh. way the recipe reads, are the recipes, and the editor um, will generally give a long recipe, a short recipe, a long head note, so that every element is covered. Um, and, and I should say, prior to that, we have also all, as a group, uh, talked about who is the appropriate photographer to shoot that book, um, and what is what is the author trying to convey? How does the editor 
want the look and feel, what do we want the look and feel to be? Um, and then that, that becomes the blueprint for the way in which the book is laid out. And that, did that come to you very naturally where you're like, oh, this is like so much fun to do the, you know, dig deep into the design and the photography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it was, you really have to do it. You have to be in it. Somebody can explain the process, but you really don't, it doesn't become, um, you really don't internalize it until you've done it. And it was really our team at Potter. I mean, I remember my first several months there. I don't think I talked. I just, <laughs> I think I was just like, I really just took it all in. I had, I was just learning. I was just soaking it all in and how it was done. And, and the lead time was different. When you're publishing a novel or nonfiction, you know, you can make those books fairly quickly from the time the manuscript is what we call transmitted or put into copy editing once that manuscript is finished. And with illustrated books, um, there, it takes much longer because our production cycle is longer. Our books are printed overseas. Um, and the change, you know, if you change a recipe or you take out a recipe, you know, everything else, it's sort of a little bit of a domino effect. The, pho- the photograph might change and the, it might impact the flow of the book. Right. I remember talking to an agent who uh, about cookbooks, and they said, it is so much more complicated. Like, I love selling a novel. I hate selling a cookbook. Because selling a cookbook, you have the photo- you know, you have photographer rights. You have recipe testing. You have... There's so many That's moving right. pieces right. and places where um, everything needs to align and be perfect for the book to be great. And I'm sure on the... And you speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, having done this book, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, and worked with such an amazing team, but... You know, I had a designer, I had a recipe tester, I had a recipe developer, um, I had my best friend who top edited me, then I had a copy editor. I mean, there was a... It's an army. (laughs) It was really an army. It was not a solo flight. Um, But it was a a great experience doing it. What is the instinct that you draw upon to figure out whether the cookbook is going to be right for Clarkson, Potter, but also you think it's going to be a big seller like is that instinct or data or combo or it's absolutely a combination um I mean I think the first thing one thing that's always in the back of my mind and and somebody told shared this with me early in my career is you don't buy books you buy authors and I think of that all the time um like and I think we for the most part follow it that you know you may have a proposal come across your desk and it's not quite right but if the author is really phenomenal or the author is truly you know authentic which is a must mm-hmm. um, you can usually you can usually pull you work with them to find a really to find the right book um, so we look at that we absolutely look at data what we call comps so when an editor wants to buy a book we look at some books that are somewhat similar, would have a similar audience or similar platform. And I think really the most important thing is the editor. Is an editor Mm -hmm. coming in and saying, I love this, and this is what I'm going to do with it, and this is why I think it's going to be a great book. And not every book has to sell a bajillion copies. Um, We're, we want a list that is, that is diverse, that's commercial and fun. But, you know, you, you mentioned Vittles, and when we published Vittles, we just thought this is such an important book. It is, which is by Ronnie Lundy, and it's a, a deep dive into the food of 
Appalachia. Appalachia. Yeah. And um, so, you know, did we think that we were going to find 100,000 people who wanted to buy a book? No. But we just felt, and that's that's part of the beauty of being at a big place. You can say, hey, we we think this is an important endeavor, um, and the rest will follow. And indeed, with that book, it did. It sold beautifully. She won every award under the sun. And we and were. She's so great. She's so great, and we were supremely proud of it. And Francis Lamb edited it. He's really one of the foremost authorities on Southern food. And the designer, Stephanie Huntwork, was from had grown up in Apple. It was just like an A team. Um, Is there any book that you've sort of a green letter assigned? I don't know what the actual term would be that you do, but um, where you were really surprised, like you thought it was going to be, you know, small or. You weren't really sure, but someone convinced you, and then you were shocked. Um, gosh, I, I'm sure there is. I'm not sure that one comes to mind. I mean, we we did. You know, I think sometimes we're sh- we're shocked, not that it sold well, but mm-hmm. you know, for example, Chrissy Teigen. We thought that book was going to sell. Did we think we were going to sell so many so fast? No, I, I was don't. wondering if she was going to be one of them because Chrissy, you know, doesn't have the food credibility. Obviously, she has a huge following and she really does love food. But there have been other people um, who have huge followings who where food isn't their central uh, thing and they haven't worked. And mm-hmm. so it was magical the way that the Chrissy Teigen book just sold so fast it was so well received. And she was so authentic in the process. Well, that's the name of the game. And it was, it's a great cookbook. I cook out of that book all the time. And I think what, I think what happened with that, and and it's all conjecture because we don't do any market research, but I think that her fans came to it because they were excited about it. She, she had been talking about it and then people started cooking from it. And then it really got its legs as not just a really fun, uh, way in, you know, a, a fun way into her, but then it really got its sea legs as, oh my God, this is actually really an amazing cookbook, which was bonus. We knew it was going to be that, but I'm not sure that, you know, booksellers and media, I think they were sort of like, oh, another celebrity cookbook, wah, wah. And it really wasn't. Um, and that was the, the magic of that book. And with that, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be back with more from my guest today, Doris Cooper. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed. You get the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. So what you want to do once you buy whole grain flour is keep it kind of wrapped so that oxygen can't get to it so it doesn't go rancid. But the good news about having that fat is that it has a lot of flavor. If you want, you can actually buy the wheat germ, for instance, and add it back to flowers. But if you buy Bob's Red Mill product, it already has the germ in it, so you don't have to. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You know I like to ride away so slowly as the ocean patrol be rolling by. Hello and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and my guest today is Doris Cooper, who is the VP at Clarkson Potter, which is 
one of my favorite book publishers ever because whenever I look at a book and I'm like, oh, I love this book, and I look to see who published it because that's what people in publishing do. They're like, who published this? I see that it's a, a book that her team has uh, assembled. So I love cookbooks. I, um, you know, it's like I pet them, I collect them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're my faience or whatever. My, my pottery is cookbooks. So to me, the state of publishing is pretty great right now because the cookbooks that are being made, I think, are better and better, more interesting, deeper. But a lot of people say publishing is really hard. What do you think the state of publishing is right now? Um, well, I, I mean, people have always said, you know, to my earlier point, like, people, oh, you don't want to do that. It's like plastics. You, surely <laughs> you can find something better to do. Um, the challenges of publishing are, I, I do think they're always changing. And maybe I, I don't know any industry that is immune to the incredible rate of change that we all are experiencing in every industry, you know, from finance to media. Um, but people are buying books. Um, they're buying books. They're talking about books. Um, I mean, we live in New York City, so it's obviously not exactly emblematic of the rest of the world. But, you know, I remember when I first moved back to New York after college and there were six independent bookstores in our neighborhood and then there were zero and now they're coming back now they're four um and that's exciting we live in the same neighborhood so i have to ask you are there really four there yeah book culture book culture um we live on bank, the upper west side bank of street there are two bank there's bank street and there is a new there's a new bookstore opening this fall so that's four i'm keeping track you know <laughs> that's um, great i'm gonna go like spend money in all of them just like i do with farmers markets yeah well i think that people want to like they feel really good they feel really good about that and people feel really good about buying books we know that you know people always say oh ebooks are killing you and actually you know, people don't tend to want cookbooks in e-format. They tend to want the physical object. Um, but, you know, the industry doesn't care how people read. We, we want people, what we really want are people to read, and we want people to talk about what they're reading. Mm -hmm. Because word of mouth is really the best marketing, like a passionate, like, oh, what have you read lately? And, oh, my God, you've got to read this book. That, that, we can't pay for that. Right. I do feel like there's more and more of that. And podcasts fall into that, too. Like, I have a list of books. I have a list of podcasts. I have a list of TV shows. Like, that's my trifecta of mm -hmm. the things I need to absorb. I don't need to absorb movies Music's not my thing. Don't I'm to, right there with you. <laughs> I don't need to absorb that. Sorry. Uh, so is it a good time to get into publishing? Like if someone is this a job that you think that people should seek out? Like where and where is it interesting now to begin? Uh, I, you know, I've always said I, I think you should begin wherever you can get a job. And wherever you end up, where you start is most likely, is certainly not going to be where you end up. That wasn't my experience. And when I look at the other editors I know, very few people have had that, had that experience. Uh, and I don't think it matters. I think you want to get your foot in the door. You want to decide, learn which kind of, which area you like. Do you want to, you know, everybody comes in like, oh, I want to edit fiction. Um, that's really hard. That, I found, I found that Demoral, totally demoralizing. Wow, but why? Because there's so much comp there's so much competition, and it's you know so many novels are published, and it's a roll of the dice. Like what gets reviewed, what gets attention, what wins an award. Um, we don't we as an industry publish a ton of cookbooks, but it's not it's not quite that competitive. But some people can only that's what they're interested in. 
I need to take a detour here and talk about gift books because it's a personal obsession of mine and you publish some great gift books. And you were in a meeting and you had this vision that cookbooks had potential. Can you just talk about that? Because I don't know that anyone grows up and says, I really want to make gift books, but I do. Like I have dreamed of gift books in one form or another for a decade. So I want to know, like, how did you see that potential and like, how is that business different? So you're referring to our our line of impulse books impulse and books. journals. Yeah. Um, well, Clarks and Potter that preceded me, and we'd always had uh, that that as a sideline. And the thinking was is that we have really such a phenomenal, maybe you know, the one of the best art, definitely one of the best art and production departments and editorial departments. What else could this group? Uh, how could we leverage those talents, um, you know, in terms of design and production? And so we have been expanding our line of impulse books. So like the Q&A a day series or do one thing every day that scares you or how, how to tie a tie. Um, and really it was, you know, we, we get numbers every day, but I had been, my, one of my favorite meetings every week is our reprint meeting where you learn, where you see what, where inventory is low, what books have been reordering. And for a few weeks in a what row, uh, it was mostly gift. It was mostly that. And I thought, it, I thought, gee, we, maybe we can make this bigger. Um, and at the time we also had two open positions and I went to our publisher and I said, Hey, well, what would you think if we mash instead of hiring for a craft and gift, instead we just hired one editorial director to oversee gift. Craft had kind of was we weren't selling as much and I wasn't it just wasn't a category that I felt particularly knowledgeable about um, in terms of book in terms of book selling. And and I felt a lot of that was going online. You know, we could really see that. And he, um, our publisher is Aaron Weiner, was like, Yeah, sure, that sounds good. And we've been doing it. And the beauty of it is a lot of the content, it's not terribly content heavy, like a cookbook. They're shorter, they're under $20. So a lot of the content we do in-house or we freelance. So the initial investment and risk isn't nearly as high as uh, paying somebody to take a year of their life to create 100 recipes, take 100 photographs and... I, just, I love the way you discovered that. I just, I love just looking at you know, what are the reorders. Let's do more of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was about that scientific. Mm. But you could, we could see, and and we had these. We did have the openings, which was, and that's one of the really lovely things about where I work is you can have an idea, and you don't have to prove it with seventeen powerpoints and business analyses. And, and we were already in it. So. If someone wants to develop a book idea, what's the best way to do that? Let's say, you know, you're sitting at home and you've made a lot of kombucha and you're like, oh, I should be a kombucha star. Um, what, how does one get into being an author? That's a great question. Um, I guess there are different paths. Um, I mean, some people go right to a literary agent and say, hey, I'm going to be the next kombucha star, and can you please sell this book for me? And the agent will either say, yes, I think I can. I know who wants to buy it, or go back and do this. I think a lot of the people we tend to find, and this is not going to be a surprise, um, are online. So if you really want to be the next kombucha star, it would really, your best bet would be to create the kombucha (laughs) Instagram (laughs) or... um, by that URL. Or blog. <laughs> yeah, or blog. Um, and 
really attract eyeballs, create really amazing content. Um, Are there new places that you're looking now? Sure. I mean, we're, you know, there are new places and they're the same places. Um, you know, and I think we think in terms of audience, we think in terms of where is this book going to sell? Um, you know, and I think the thing that's so great about our editorial team is like everyone is just like really out in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you come in in the morning and you know, there's usually cake on the counter. <laughs> um, well, that sounds good. Is that from being out in the world? Yeah, it's from, it could be from the food truck downstairs yeah. or, you know, I was, I was online last night and I made this amazing cake. What do you guys think? Um, or I just got to get this out of my house. But what <laughs> pe- that's our water cooler. What people are talking about, where did they have dinner or what new ingredient did they discover or how are they cooking differently? Um, and a lot of our ideas come from just that kind of conversation. So I think there are some publishers who, you know, just look beyond and are, are looking to new places that are not the usual, which I think, the, I mean, the basic idea here is, right, become an expert and you'll be found. Reach out or you'll be found. It's sort of like the hand reaching down and the hand reaching up and they sort of meet in I the middle. I think so. And I think most people who end up with books did not start they're doing what they were doing with the book as an end game. Um, not that I don't think you know. I'm not sure we'd be suspicious of that, but it doesn't quite seem like the right end game. The right. It, it's really about the means. It's really about you know. There was nothing else I could do but write about this topic, or this is what spoke to me. And then that's where the authenticity comes, and that's that will yield eyeballs. And once you have that audience. Um, it is appropriate. The next step may very well be for you to write a book. So let's talk about how you support your authors because you are author first and you're so all in in books, which I love. It's not like you're trying to do 10 different things. You're trying to support the author, authors and then support the books. So can you talk about the ways in which Clarkson Potter supports the authors, the Speakers Bureau? And Oh, sure. Um, well, we, I mean, I think there... Clarkson, Rand, Penguin Random House has a speakers bureau, and they, one of the ideas behind that is that so many of our authors um, are incredible speakers. They they have incredible ideas, whether they're novelists or self help or you know even cookbook authors. And um, the the goal of that group is to get author work with authors to get speaking engagements and to get their books to their speaking engagements. So it's basically one stop shopping um, or you know it's really I think we think it's very nice for the authors to have one place that would provide all of those services and I think we often think about that what are the services that we can provide for our author you know we copy yeah you know, we do everything we copy it we design we market we publicize um, and you know then there are the intangibles of just collaboration and cheerleading and um, That's actually what you're describing is actually the sum total of your job, right? It is, yeah. Because in fact, you ha- you have this great title, but it means that you oversee all those elements. Like, how would you describe your job? That and working with the editors to do that. I mean, they're they are really the shepherds of their. Uh, each editor is the shepherd of his or her own book, and um, you know, every every single day is different. Um, and it, you know, I really, my, I am, I, I am doing my job well, I think at the best when the editors feel like they have 
the space and freedom to do their best job. And a lot of it is problem solving, you know? Oh gosh, such and such retailer doesn't like the cover on that book. Whoa, we're supposed to send it to the printer tomorrow. What are we going to do? And just sitting down and thinking, okay, here are three working together to figure out what those three options are and which, which is the path we should take. So are you a calm problem solver? Generally, <laughs> generally, yes. Um, I'm much calmer helping other people to solve their problems than I probably am <laughs> when I have to solve my own. Um, but I think that maybe that's something that comes with age. I mean, we had a problem a few weeks ago, and there was a young editor who, you know, really felt that she was, um, that somehow she had disappointed, the, which wasn't true at all. Mm-hmm. Eh, let's just see what happens. Let's just <laughs> remember when I worked. Uh, I worked on some books with New York City Ballet, and um, at the time, one of the people at the ballet said that Balanchine's dancers used to say, "Should I hold my arms this way or that way?" And Mr. B used to say, "Darling, sometimes it's better just to do nothing." And, <laughs> and I think of that. You know, sometimes problems will just you just take a breath, do nothing, and they resolve. Boy, I, sometimes I don't, though. Right. I love that approach. So mm-hmm. at the um, the show, we always ask for uh, the guest to propose a woman for the Hall of Dames, someone who's in the food world, who you admire, uh, admire their work, and you think that they deserve recognition that they may or may not have had. Who would you recommend for the Hall of Dames? Oh, you sprung that on me, Dana. <laughs> um... I really, I, I mean, I think one of the people who comes to mind, because you and I have talked so much about her, and when you reached out, she was the person who came up, was Ronnie Lundy. Um, she did get a lot of recognition, much deserved, um, but she's really a very, she's really a very special person. Um, and where does, where does she live, and what number book was this for her? I think it was, that's a good question, she... she she th- I believe she lives in North Carolina, and I think it was her, gosh, I don't know. Th- it was her first book with us. It may have been her third book. Because I remember book. following her um, for decades. I mean, and I'm not saying there were books throughout the decades, but I know that one of the things that seemed exceptional about the way that Clarkson Potter published this book is that this has been her topic um, for a long time, but it, it shows how... It shows the importance of the publisher in making a great book that the either the audience wasn't ready or the way it was put out in the world um, meant that you know now she's getting the attention that she deserves for the for the great work that that she's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it was very exciting. I mean, one of the things for her, she was she ultimately ended up with a phenomenal f- photography team in, in addition to Francis and Stephanie and our whole team. Um, but it's also, you know, we had this amazing book to go out in the world and say, this is really something special. And I think there may have even been, you know, it came out right, you know, right around the time of the election, right around the time of Hillbellyology. It was really a counterpoint to that. So it was also exciting to have a book that had um, a real, you know, not just a cultural relevance, but also a social and political relevance as well. And taking a uh, a misunderstood aspect of it and really setting it right. And she spoke with such and wrote with such authority and grace. And that is where we're going to end this 
episode of Speaking Broadly with authority and grace from a very authoritative source, Doris Cooper. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to thank Vitor Hirsch for being an amazing engineer today. Thank you, Vitor. And thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or any guests that you'd like me to interview on air, please reach out to me. You can find me at FW Scout on Instagram, Twitter. You can find me at Dane Cowan on uh, Facebook. And what about all these amazing books? If everybody wants to see what Clarkson Potter is up to and what your editors have been uh, signing and working on, where would they find that? At Clarkson Potter. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. Looking forward to seeing, seeing, I'm not going to see any of you, um, having you all back next week. Have a great week. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Yes, I-